0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from markfiore.com, The Majority Report, The Bugle, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, The Onion Radio News, The Progressive, BBC News Quiz, Comedian Lee Camp, and The Rachel Maddow Show. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, the fact that you are listening to this podcast is being recorded by your government for quality assurance purposes.
1: I'm not scary, I'm snuggly, the security bear. Hi, boys and girls, I'm back here on Capitol Hill to keep you cyber snuggly. We tried with Sopa, then with Peepa, and now with Seespa. And if this one doesn't work, we'll keep trying. Maybe with Snoopa, Pika, or arrest ya. <laughs> Some cyber terror sympathizers say this new bill is about dumping existing privacy laws and snooping without court orders. I say it's about keeping you snugly and secure. <laughs> Don't worry though, private companies will only share your information with the government if it's for cyber security. Which, just to be on the safe side, is pretty much cyber anything. <laughs> It's not like any of these companies would do anything to violate your privacy, right? And if they do, we'll find them. $25,000! So, I hope little Timmy in room 403 didn't use the internet to say his lab partner is the bomb. Because that sounds pretty cyber-attacky to me. And should probably be shared with the NSA. (laughs) But don't get paranoid, Timmy. We're just keeping you snugly and secure. And I won't even mention the domestic drone authorizations. <laughs> I'm walking down that
2: long, lonesome road, babe.
3: Where I'm bound,
1: I can't tell. But goodbye is too good a word, gal. So I'll just say fare thee well. I ain't saying you treated me unkind You could have done better But I don't mind You just sort of wasted my precious time
4: I don't think twice.
0: This is a Best of the Left activism update. So it's been a remarkable past few weeks for LGBT activism. On one hand, we had President Obama come out and endorse gay marriage, yet it came on the heels of North Carolina passing Amendment 1, the state referendum on constitutionally redefining any union to solely include that between a man and a woman in marriage. North Carolina is now the 30th state to use a referendum to amend their constitution to marginalize same-sex marriage rights. And while President Obama's endorsement is an important personal evolution, his administration has not explicitly given indication it will actively seek to repeal the Defense of Marriage Act at the national level. So it's now more apparent than ever that LGBT activism must challenge individual state laws in order to further the national equality momentum, so here's what you should do. The Equality Federation at equalityfederation.org is the national alliance of LGBT advocacy organizations. Their mission is to achieve equality for all LGBT Americans in every state or territory by building strong and sustainable statewide campaigns. Their site features a state directory where you can look up leading LGBT equality organizations in your home state where you can directly volunteer or donate. Also, for those of you really keen to get your hands dirty, the Equality Federation has an interesting tool called the Statescape and Bill Finder, which allows you to input your state and look up the pending equality bills in your state legislator that you can then support or oppose. Grassroots pressure on the state level is only one of many vital tools that is needed to come together to affect national change. Stay tuned as we explore other ways to affect change for this and other pressing causes in future editions of the Best of the Left Activism Update.
3: April fourth, on the Majority Uh Report podcast, you can hear our interview, which I think we also have on YouTube, uh, with Bruce Afrin. He was uh he is an attorney representing seven uh plaintiffs, including Chris Hedges, Dan Ellsberg, Noam Chomsky, Brigida John's daughter, also um, a couple others I should mention. Kai Wagala, Jennifer Bolin, Alexa O'Brien, and they had head into a federal district court in New York, the Southern District of New York. The judge was, was uh, Catherine Forrest. Bruce Afrin at the time told us that they were attempting to enjoin the government from from implementing. Parts of the National Defense Authorization Act, specifically the Homeland Battlefield Act, because it would have a chilling effect upon journalists and writers, because it could pur- it could in- they could be guilty of in- uh, of aiding and abetting people who were associated with terrorists in other words they could uh, call organizations unknowingly or knowingly who were involved with terrorists to do their journalism and it would create a chilling effect upon them the first issue that these plaintiffs were going to have to deal with as Bruce Afrin in that interview with us uh, back in April April 4th uh spoke about was whether or not the plaintiffs had standing because they had not yet been detained the second issue was even if they had standing the lack of imminent enforcement against them renders injunctive release unnecessary in other words they're not about to be uh... indefinitely detained so there's no reason for an enjoyment And three, that the NDA creates no new detention powers beyond those that already exist because of the authorization uh for military force that was passed after 9-11. Well, the court founds that A, they did have standing because they already are suffering substantial injury from a what the court found was a reasonable fear that they could be subject to this provision section specifically 1021 the court writes plaintiffs assert that 1021 already has impacted their associational and expressive activities and will continue to impact them, and that 1021 is vague to such an extent that it provokes fear that certain of their associational and expressive activities could subject them to indefinite or prolonged military detention. And the courts found that, yeah, they actually do have a justifiable fear of this. And at one point during the hearing the court had asked if the DOJ the Department of Justice could state clearly that these people would not be subjected to the uh to this section 1021 based upon the actions that they normally involve themselves with and the Department of Justice said we can't we can't answer that question Uh so the court found that the plaintiffs have stated more than a plausible clown, uh, claim that the statute inappropriately uh, encroaches upon their rights under the First Amendment. The court also found that the plaintiffs are likely to succeed on their claim that the NDA violates their Fifth Amendment of due process rights because there's really no way to know based upon the way the statute is written. Where the law, where the line is that they cross that could actually cause them to run afoul of the law. Nobody knows, quite frankly, what direct or substantial or the word support means. It's not defined. So you could actually be guilty of doing this without even being aware that's what you were doing. The court also cited three reasons why the NDAA expands the government detention power over the 2001 authorization for military force. So this is a huge, huge win that I think a few people actually thought would happen. So go back, listen to that uh, April 4th interview. We have it on YouTube if you want. We'll put a link to it on Majority.fm, but uh, this is a big win. Undoubtedly there'll be a uh, an appeal to this, but this is a rare case where a judge was brave enough to stand up to Department of Justice. Uh in, in this and in you'll recall Occupy Wall Street people were arrested in Grand Central Station protesting this. This is a big one.
5: Golden Brown, texture like sun.
6: When you hear someone shouting, I need Ai Weiwei! You know it is either a small child still mastering the age old art of bladder control, or it's the Chinese government trying to control the renowned artist and dissident Ai Weiwei. And he's hit the headlines again, following on from uh, previous artistic stunts, including last year's hit piece of installation art entitled Myself in a Prison Cell for No Reason. (laughs) bit modern for my liking, John. Why couldn't he just paint a picture of a horse like George Stubbs used to? And uh, also his uh, current interactive exhibition, Oh No, I've Been Grounded, My Government Doesn't Understand Me. And uh, he has installed four live webcams uh, in an effort to satirise the surveillance that the Chinese police have put him under 24 hours a day since his release from jail.
4: That's right, Andy. He he is one Chinese artist who has been repeatedly speaking out against the Chinese government's human rights abuses. And when you do that, you can be sure of one thing, and that is that the Chinese government will provide you with food and low-grade lodging completely free (laughs) for the foreseeable future with fellow like-minded people who also thought it would be a good idea to run their little mouths off. So, yeah, the answer in question is Ai Weiwei, or name not found if you Google search his name in China. (laughs) Uh, Ai Weiwei is both one of China's best-known artists and best-hated artists, depending (laughs) on who you are. Uh, He is famous, which I guess makes killing him frustratingly difficult. Uh, And he's also the son of one of the Communist Party's most revered poets, making his criticism even harder to swallow. Uh, Now, in April 2011, he was detained by authorities as he boarded uh, a plane to Hong Kong and held in a secret location for 81 days. He was freed on condition that he would not speak to the media, a condition that he has, in every sense, not kept. Surely the Chinese government should know by now, Andy, that he's not going to do what they say. They need to try reverse psychology. Just release him on the condition that he do nothing but speak to the media in the most critical possible terms. Then they can just sit back and wait for him to take a vow of silence. (laughs) Uh, Instead, the government have been investigating him for so-called economic crimes. And uh, several months later... Uh, served him with a bill for 15 million yuan, about two and a half million dollars in back taxes and fines. Now, I'm not an accountant, Andy. Uh, I don't know the full details of the tax returns in question, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that those accusations are, at best, convenient, and at (laughs) worst, complete bullshit.
6: It is starting to look, though, John, that the Chinese government and Ai Weiwei are just never going to get on. I mean, it could could just be uh, kind of a soap opera style slow build-up to a late-flowering romance, but uh-huh. it just doesn't, it doesn't look good. It does well, not look good.
4: Especially because he's come up with a new, imaginative way to infuriate the Chinese government. He set up four live webcams at his home, putting himself under self-surveillance in a nod to the 24-hour police surveillance that he's lived under for the last year. He said that by setting up the cameras, including one above his bed, he hoped to encourage transparency from all sides. Uh, he describes this project as uh, a negotiation between private space, the public nature of security and the power of the state. Yeah, it's true. It's true, Andy. But it's also a good way to annoy the f*** out of the Chinese government. Let's not leave that important detail out. But but perhaps, as you say, this is going to be the Chinese government's defence, that all their human rights abuses and restrictions on personal liberties are just a performance art piece as well, to make people think about how it would feel to live under repressive conditions such as those. They're really posing the question, what is freedom, with their ambitious 9.6 million square kilometre installation piece. (laughs) If you are listening to this podcast in China, either everything has gone silent for the last few minutes or you're about to hear a, lo- a loud knock on your door. China is not a big fan of freedom. That's, that's the basic overall message here. China feels about freedom how I feel about the Dave Matthews Band. They just don't see the point of it and they find its popularity <laughs> slightly depressing and occasionally infuriating. But, but not to worry. Luckily, China has found a clever way to defeat the rise of freedom, and that is to crush it mercilessly under a government boot. Take the internet, for instance. The World Wide Web is supposed to be just like that, worldwide. And it's also supposed to be the Wild West, an unregulated land where anything is possible, and banner advertising pop-ups shove the latest installment of the American Pie movie atrocity series down <laughs> uninterested throats. China, however sees the internet a different way. They see the internet like an irritating wasp at a picnic that must be swatted. And (laughs) the internet seems to view China a similar way. Although, it's worth mentioning that Google has a different opinion, seeing China as a dominatrix under whose high heel they long to lie. But, (laughs) But the anonymous hacking group this week launched an attack on China, defacing almost 500 websites, including government sites, official agencies, trade groups, and many others. Uh, they placed a message on the site saying that the attack was carried out to protest against the Chinese government's strict control of its citizens. The message read Dear Chinese government, you are not infallible. Today, websites are hacked. Tomorrow, it will be your vile regime that will fall. The Chinese government presumably replied by sending a message back reading Dear Anonymous, you have no idea who you're. F- with here. China don't play that shit. You have just opened up a fortune cookie of pain and the fortune in it reads beware your own bullshittery today for tomorrow the next global superpower will fuck you in the face Now, it's, it's unfortunate as well that Anonymous chose to post their message mostly in English so it will probably make exactly as much sense to Chinese people as if you put a similar message up on the FBI website in Cantonese <laughs> But it was posted in English, John. But
6: it was English that appeared to have been put straight through a uh, translation, a bit of translation yes. software.
4: Yes, that's Because
6: it makes almost no sense whatsoever. Yeah. I'll just, uh, a couple of words from the uh, message of solidarity with the oppressed that Anonymous uh, put up. Over the years, the Chinese Communist government, to unfair laws and unhealthy process to control the people. Dear Chinese government, you is not never fall. And today the website is black. Tomorrow is your e- evil regime fell. <laughs> so, I'm, I mean, it's, it's hard to know what to read into that. I mean, yeah. yes, freedom is good, but
4: arguably grammar is better. <laughs> the, uh, the Chinese web surveillance system is more repressive than a Victorian sex education teacher who's allergic to the word penis. It's more (laughs) constrictive than a Burmese python that has your balls in a nutcracker. I'm saying it clamps down pretty tight, Andy. Tighter than an oyster with an attitude problem. The system is one of the most comprehensive surveillance systems in the world, and it's known as the Great Firewall of China. In the future, Andy, tourists will come from all over the world to fail to look at what's behind it. (laughs) Apparently, astronauts can even Google it from space. The Great <laughs> Firewall, which definitely sounds like something Evil Knievel would have tried to jump over, second second mentioned for Evil Knievel. Oh, this year. oh yeah, that's
7: a
6: that's
4: a big 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 week for Knievel. <laughs> uh, it it returns no results for searches of banned terms, censors, chats, and vets blogs. Banned topics include the Falun Gong. Uh, Spiritual movement and human rights activist Ai Weiwei. The uh, the system polices where Chinese people can go online and tries to restrict what they can talk about. Chinese censors are even actively targeting social media sites such as Facebook and Twitter to stamp out any discussion of banned topics. Andy, you can't stop people talking about the things they most want to talk about. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, you can. You can do that, or you can you can at least give it a very good go, as the Chinese are proving. But you shouldn't. That's the point. It's like banning Belgians from saying the word waffle. It's what's in their hearts. Without the ability to say the word waffle, Belgians would just stare blankly into space, making grunting sounds at each other.
1: Let's <laughs> just
0: dollars a month or even fifty five dollars a year members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself so for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice please visit the membership tab at best
1: and
8: it's so funny that it reminds me it shows you what a fanboy i am of the Hardcore History interview we did with James Burke so long ago. And I think I've actually brought the same line he used. I know I have on the show before, but it's one of those profound thoughts that you can use as a hub to build off all kinds of other interesting thoughts. I guess that's why, was it the New York Times, Ben, that called him one of the most intriguing minds in the Western world? All he has to do is lay down one sentence to me, and I'm thinking about it years later. It was his line, and I'm going to butcher it now, because I don't remember, it. it was years ago, where he talked about how, the technological changes that are happening, especially in things like communication, might make the nation state as we know it, you know, countries superfluous, certainly the very large ones. He talked about how, and I really don't want to put any words into his mouth. Um, You can go to the website, get that interview if you want. Um, But he was kind of saying that a lot of the things that used to make it advantageous to be a big, you know, giant state were being made superfluous, or sometimes even drawbacks in an era where you didn't need all that, that modern technology and communications made it possible to do a lot of the things you needed that size to do. You could basically turn Tennessee, I think he said, maybe into its own country, with its own trade policy, its own foreign policy, and ability to take care of its own stuff. Now, I thought about that, again, when I was thinking about this story, this sort of, you know, five, six, seven things I've cut out of the newspaper that are related to this subject at hand. And I thought to myself... All of a sudden, a new thought based on that axis, that hub that James Burke laid down in the program that keeps me thinking. How do you think the United States government would react to Tennessee deciding that it didn't need to be part of a nation state anymore? How do you think China would react to one of those Uyghur provinces or something in the West deciding it didn't really need to be a part of China anymore? It could be self-sufficient. I think you see where I'm going with this. There's some interesting internal contradictions, maybe we should call them, happening right now that are being brought to a head by the level and pace of technological change, specifically as it regards communications technology, that may be at the point now that the 1960s were at in like 1966, where you can see it happening, and then by 1967, 68, boom, it's here. I'm not saying it's happening that fast. This is going to be a slower playing out process. But I think we're starting to see the internal contradictions between what the nation state can handle and what the technology is allowing us to do come to a head. Let me go back and start with a story once again. I'm afraid I might have talked about before. When you've done more than 200 of these things and you can't remember what you had for dinner last night, I think it is amazing that we don't just say the same thing every show anyway and not know it. But that having been said as basically an apology to you, I'm sorry. um, I had a conversation once that I've never forgotten with an expert on Eastern Europe. And the conversation was years ago, back in the era, middle 1990s, early 1990s, when the whole breakup of the former Yugoslavia was happening and the troubles that were going on in the Balkans were occurring. And so the conversation was set up to talk about that. But because Russia historically always had such an important role in that region, we naturally got into a discussion about that, especially since The Soviet Union incarnation of the Russian system and state had just recently broken up. You know, this is a major geopolitical uh, collapse that impacted everything. And, you know, it was his point of view that it impacted this Balkan thing a lot. So we started talking about that. And I asked him about the traditional American narrative that has kind of taken hold. It's, It's not really... You know, 60, I'll say 60 percent of the people buy it. It's always been kind of more of a political thing, something to give a particular piece of credit to Ronald Reagan for in the Cold War. The American idea that the reason the Soviet Union fell was because we started an arms race, including things like Star Wars, which the Soviet Union couldn't match because their system economically was dried up and they didn't have the money and it bankrupted them. This was a conscious strategy on the part of. The Reagan administration to, you know, see a a Soviet Union that couldn't handle the raising of the stakes and then to raise them and boom, they're busted. And this expert on Eastern European affairs and government laughed. He said, yes, that's the narrative. He goes, but anybody who watches this stuff understands that the internal contradictions in the Soviet Union were going to force it, you know, into one of a couple of directions. And the direction it chose didn't allow it to continue to exist anymore. It disintegrated it, essentially. He said the Soviet Union was an early to mid-20th century style police state. In order for it to remain a first world, the superpower, along with the United States, it was forced to make choices in terms of technology and communications, which it didn't want to make because it couldn't maintain its middle 20th century style police state in a more open world that fostered more communication between people. Militarily, the Soviet Union couldn't keep up with where the West was going without developing you know, the communications technology that was revolutionizing warfare, the kind of stuff that's um, talked about in Alvin and Heidi Toffler's book, War and Anti-War. This whole revolution that was occurring in the late 70s, early 80s, where... The United States was turning into a communication-oriented direction that would revolutionize battlefield warfare. And the Soviet Union couldn't go there because to go there meant, you know, they couldn't confine this technological communication and development to just the military sphere. They were going to have to let it loose in their society. And their society was so tightly controlled that that would have destroyed the society. My stepfather's prescription of how you defeat the Soviet Union comes to mind, where he always said during the Cold War, we were fighting it the wrong way. He said, these people don't want to live like this. They may not know they don't want to live like this. You just send a bunch of bombers overhead, and you drop Levi's jeans, Playboy magazines, and rock and roll records on these people, and they will overthrow that government themselves. It's why police states like the Soviet Union were always so keen to keep their own people from being tainted by Western influences and decadence, right? Just having contact with some American sailors during the Second World War at a Soviet port would be enough to get you deported. You've been corrupted by Western imperialist values and decadence. Those kind of states don't like communication. It's why you have, like, one newspaper, sometimes two. You have Pravda. And if you don't like Pravda, you have Investia. I mean, you have the government's official line and if you start a newspaper of your own you're going to be arrested because that's illegal because that's a threat in a state that's that tightly controlled so as technology and communication moved into an era where if you want to keep up with the joneses and you want to be part of the first world and not a north korea who chooses to be a police state makes that choice and just realizes you can't be a police state and a superpower you're going to be off in gilligan's island land on the side of the world and have no lights showing up on the satellite images of you You know when they're taken because you have no technology fine you'd be a police state the Soviet Union wasn't going to make that choice they were a, a superpower they tried Glasnost remember that Glasnost was the Soviet attempt to have their cake and eat it too when it came to being a police state can we still be a police state but open up enough to get the values of all this soon to be 21st century technology that's coming down the pike. They were walking a very fine line, though, with captive populations in the Warsaw Pact and everybody, and and they fell off the fine line. It was a tightrope walk to see if they could manage it, and they didn't manage it, and the whole thing just imploded. But this expert basically said that it was on the verge of imploding for a long time. The fact that you reached a fork in the road and had to either open up or die killed that police state. Now, you can look at China today as potentially a better example of a formerly closed communistic police state deciding to try to have a soft landing. Because that's what they were. They were every bit and more closed than the Soviet Union used to be. They took a, a different road to figuring out a way to tie itself into the grid enough so that it can be a part of the world in the 21st century, but not so much that it totally had to turn into, you know, France. Revolutionary France. I mean, you know, it didn't have to really be a democracy, but it's not the closed society it was. So it's it's trying to sort of put their balance between communication and state authority, you know, at a, at a lower level than we here in the West would certainly find acceptable, right? To us, China is still a repressive, one-party, non-democratic state and all those kind of things. It's trying to evolve enough to be flexible enough to incorporate, you know, the new world coming in. Now, for a long time, it's easy for us here in the West to laugh at the Soviet Union's problem. Serves them right. You don't give your people the freedom to talk to each other and communicate and have the rights to have free discussions and ideas and print books and all that stuff. This is what you get. You deny human freedom long enough and you reap the rewards, right? But now we're at an interesting point. The technology is exponentially better in terms of communication and all that stuff than the level of openness that brought down these mid-20th century style police states. They're at a point now where they threaten the free and open democratic countries here in, you know, France and Britain and the United States and Australia and Canada and all these places. All of a sudden, this is a level of openness we're not that comfortable with either. It gets me back to the James Burke idea Where if you want to look at it a different way, he had a benign sort of twist on it. Like Tennessee, if they wanted to, could just go their own way and everybody be happy with that. There's another way to look at it. It's that hub. Just The James Burke idea sends me in a different direction. You could look at it that this is going to be a huge, remarkably destabilizing force, this communications technology. And we've already seen it, haven't we, in the whole Middle East and the role it played in the Arab Spring and all that stuff. That's just a first taste. We're in the Model T stage of this whole communications revolution, folks. Don't fall for any idea that we're somehow reaching a plateau. This is the very beginning. And look at the strains it's putting on the systems that we inherited from earlier ages. Case in point, the nation state. That's hundreds of years old. You know that, right? Countries haven't always existed. The modern nation state system traditionally dates back to the Peace of Westphalia in the 1600s, where certain prerogatives were laid down and who the highest authority was and what the relationships were. I mean, France was basically a nation state before the Peace of Westphalia. It just codified something that was already, you know, seeing the most forward nations evolve that way. But before that, there were kingdoms, there were duchies, there were empires, there were other systems that, for all intents and purposes in our discussion here, are the same kinds of systems. Developed in a period where people were able to control communication much more rigidly than they are now. If you go back and look at what some of the things that were most feared in, say, the autocratic era in Europe where kings ruled everything, kings or the church ruled everything, they couldn't stand things like newspapers. Couldn't stand them. I mean, these are death penalties in some places. It's one of the reasons that the freedom of the press thing in the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment is so big. Because at the time, this was essentially putting a line on the ground saying it's the people that control this country. And nobody's going to silence the newspapers because silencing the newspapers was the favorite thing for all these kings to do. Because the newspapers, if you let them get out of hand, start saying bad things about this policy or the way the government's going or they start talking to each other about, you know, let, let, let the people talk about sedition. So I only have one or two choices in the Soviet Union. The state wants to control the narrative as much as possible. So you put like a First Amendment into our Constitution and we love newspapers. and The British love newspapers and all these Western democracies and places that emulate us love newspapers. But you can see, folks, how that still provides a way to control the narrative. It still provides a break on everybody communicating with everyone else. I mean, you want to talk to your neighbors. You need to write a letter to the editor in the old days, to the newspaper, paper, and if they like it, they'll print it. And then if someone wants to respond to you, they'll write a letter back to the editor, and the editor will look at it and decide if they want to print it or not. At no time are you allowed to broadcast to your neighbor who's allowed to broadcast to you, and at the same time, everyone else. All of a sudden, we're reaching a level of communication that threatens our own open, free, democratic governments. And the stories that I cut out from my newspaper are all about that. Um, I have one from from China. So this isn't about the free Western democracies. But the one from China involves um, a uh, rumor online about a coup in China that has freaked the Chinese government out. And once again, what it's starting to show is what happens when you don't have to write a letter to the editor to get your views broadcast. You can just throw it out there and soak in other people and how much this puts a pinch and strains these national systems based on a certain level of control on information and communication. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 1st, 2012. Dateline Beijing, by the way, quote. China has launched an internet crackdown amid its worst political crisis in decades, shuttering more than a dozen websites, limiting access to the country's largest microblog providers, and arresting six people for spreading rumors about a coup attempt in Beijing. From later in the piece, quote. Cinecorp and Tencent Holdings Limited, provider of China's wildly popular Twitter-like services, said they were halting users' abilities to comment on posts until Tuesday morning to, quote, end quote, clean up what they describe as, quote, harmful messages, end quote. The story continues. Microblog users deemed to have posted offending content have had their accounts frozen in the past, but the latest moves are the most severe in the ongoing struggle to control social media, considered one of the biggest challenges to the government's authority. End quote. What's happening to China now, it seems to me, you know, there's something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear is that they're reaching a moment where their compromise that they made that allowed them to kind of pull glasnost off the correct way is reaching a tipping point because the communications technology is just getting so advanced. You know, the Soviet Union was taken down by, you know, cell phones and Internet. China's having a really hard time with this social networking. The more restrictive and controlling the society is, the earlier it feels the pinch of all this ability for the people to discuss things with each other in ways that, you know, create sedition is the way unrest and sedition is the way the founding fathers era would have discussed it.
2: the onion radio news the fbi discontinues its witness protection parade this is doyle redland reporting the FBI announced today that due to logistical complications and a lack of interest among participants, the annual John Smith Memorial Witness Protection Parade will be canceled indefinitely. FBI Chief Robert Mueller. There was always trouble. We'd have a group all arranged to carry the big star witnesses' shining bright banner, and then poof, all six men would disappear into thin air on the day of the event. Over the years, the parade has seen an unusually high incidence of tragedy, including the almost yearly explosion of the limousine caravan sponsored by the Sons of Italy Working Men's Association. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Online at theonion.com.
1: Here comes the parade someday. Someday. Spit these thoughts out for they stain me. Finally they're here for me. Been Waiting now for days. Hooray.
9: The First Amendment just took another hit. Earlier this month, a U.S. citizen was sentenced to 17 and a half years in prison for committing speech and thought crimes. His name is Tarek Mahana. He's a pharmacist who was born in Pittsburgh. But because he sympathized with Muslim causes, because he advocated jihad, though not the killing of civilians, because he expressed admiration for bin Laden, because he watched jihadi videos, and because he translated a text from a Saudi religious scholar entitled 39 Ways to Serve and Participate in Jihad, he now will be middle-aged before he's a free man again. Prosecutors couldn't prove that he was an agent of al-Qaeda, couldn't prove that he was plotting to commit a violent crime. Instead, they convicted him on the slippery charge of providing and conspiring to provide material support to terrorists, a crime that the Patriot Act put on the books. When this law was passed, many civil libertarians warned that it could be used to prosecute mere thought crimes, And that's largely what's happened here. According to the New York Times, one prosecutor told the jury that it's even illegal to watch something on TV in order to cultivate your desire, your ideology. Wow, look how far down that slippery slope we've slid already. Watching TV can now put you in prison. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
1: You are
0: but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
10: Andy, who wants to keep secrets but take liberties? Uh, well, this is the government's new proposals to uh, secretly friend the entire nation. Um, Basically what they want is they want it to be legally binding for internet providers to keep a record of, well, almost everything we do on the internet, really. And I mean, this is wrong. The government should not spy on our private internet communications because that is the job of the Murdoch Empire and Google. (laughs) It's just pointless doubling up, you know. It's our own fault in a way because we fell in love with these new shiny digital technologies that allow us to communicate incessantly and instantly but they have come with a price and now the government is seeking to extend its power so that they can access our emails which are of course 99.99% insignificant drivel (laughs) although they're all marked as urgent (laughs) But then the government's justification for extending these powers is that it's in order so they can catch terrorists. But I think, really, they'll only be able to catch one kind of terrorist, which is the fantastically stupid yeah. terrorist, because no terrorist with any nouse is going to use media that can be easily recorded or intercepted. Surely,
11: if the terrorists want to use the Internet to communicate secretly, they can just do it on page two of Google search, because nobody ever looks at it. Well...
10: I heard um, Theresa May saying that the favourite method of communication for terrorists currently is Skype, which uh, for some reason conjured up this mental image of sort of hardcore Al Qaeda operatives saying, No, we can just see your nose.
1: Move your chair back. Move your chair back.
11: I love the idea. Terrorists in balaclavas yeah. going, no, no, it's me. It yeah. is me. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I
12: think it's sad that letter writing skills among terrorists have diminished so yes. so much. We think of the nineteenth century. There are all sorts of anarchists blowing up things, and they must have. They probably had beautiful penmanship. Mm. <laughs> would sit down and take the time to write a letter. I mean, a, a network meant something in those days.
13: Yeah. <laughs> I um, thought these things were all allowed anyway. You know, I would sort of hope, in a way, that the intelligence services could look wherever they wanted to most of the time. You know, some sort of big fire lands on the desk in Spooks and Peter Firth is saying to everyone, right, let's get up on the screen, there's this big Russian criminal and he's done this and he's done that. You sort of think that's OK. You don't sort of think, well, never mind what the poor criminal's done, what about his privacy rights <laughs>
11: <laughs> Did you go to boarding school, Miles? Uh, no, it's just Matron read all our letters and you have that sort of sound that it's perfectly OK. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <do> you, <yeah. laughs> Well, I, I, no, it's funny you should say that,
13: because that when I was at a, a prep school on, a, on Sunday, it was letter writing before lunch. Yes. And so you would, you would write a letter, and then you'd take it up to the front, and you, uh, whoever was on duty would go through the letter and point out grammatical errors to you, or spelling mm. errors. But presumably, actually, what they were doing was making sure that you weren't writing, Dear Mum and Dad, yes. uh, Wr- I expect bit- all the Latin department are members of a terror cell. Yes. yes. <laughs> People
12: keep talking about our rights being taken. We haven't had it since John Major and Tony Blair let rip. We've got... The only rights that we have is we can graze our geese on common land and take things back to Marks and Spencers.
10: (laughs) (laughs) Can you take geese back to Marks and (laughs) Spencers?
4: I just got the feeling that... Every time I do an email, that somebody's actually reading it apart from the person that I'm sending it to. And so I do deliberately put little things into the emails just in case somebody is reading it, like, you know, I hope that not too many people heard the explosion, you know, things like that. And, you know, and the bomb making factory is coming on really, really well. And uh, do you know I've got another key for Buckingham Palace? Do you put things in like that? Because you just never know what happened. Then you get strange cars parking outside your door, which is, which is really quite nice.
11: Uh, David Cameron has defended plans to create secret courts and to extend powers to monitor the public's emails, phone calls and social media communications. The Prime Minister said, where there are gaps that need to be plugged, we need to plug those gaps. And it's thinking like that that makes him so respected. <laughs>
12: <laughs> we didn't talk about the secret courts, did we? Well, we can
10: do, if you
11: like.
12: Well, we didn't. We should have done, shouldn't we?
10: Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> a secret, Jeremy. No. You can't talk about them. Because yeah. MI6
12: don't
13: want us to know things. It
11: was the CIA. Oh, the CIA it don't want to tell CIA us anything. It was the CIA who don't want the MI6
13: to tell us anything. The CIA will discover that something will happen on British territory. Yeah. And they will tell us we've discovered a thing. Yes. Yeah. But they won't tell us
10: what's what already happened. Thing is. That's, yeah. what, that's what uh, Theresa May and others have said has already happened, is that there was an incident where they discovered that there was going to be a Mumbai style attack and all people were going to phone
12: us up and try and get us to change service providers
1: (laughs) (laughs) with a strong
12: Indian accent but claiming some ridiculous English name (laughs) hello it's Heroid the Wake Caller (laughs)
10: No, in theory, the Americans sort of tipped us the wink that something was on the cards, but they wouldn't give us the details because they were worried it would get revealed in open court. So our security services, like, you know, because they are good, we've seen spooks, then had to make their own investigation, which they did, and then they thwarted this.
11: They found it anyway.
10: Yeah. I think there should just
12: be secret courts that are so secret that they don't even arrest us at all, that they try us and sentence us and then just leave us alone completely. <laughs> so we don't even know that we've been convicted and that we're under house arrest with a degree of leniency.
11: If, uh, if you want to let the government know what you think of the proposal, write your thoughts in an email and send it to... Well, no, actually, anybody... Uh, <laughs>
3: So the Baltimore police have been going after people who have been videotaping, and you've seen this all across the country, we have seen examples of this all across the country, where cops see people videotaping them in the course of whatever it is they're doing while they're on duty, and they go after the videotaper. Time and time again. They charge them with loitering, they tell them we're not dispersing, whatever it is. The Department of Justice on Monday sent a strongly worded letter to the Baltimore police. Now, I know that sounds almost like a joke, but that's actually relevant. It was specifically dealing with a May 2010 case where the Baltimore police arrested a guy named Christopher Sharp. Uh, the cops were arresting Sharp's buddy and beating him. And so Sharp was recording them on the cell phone. They grabbed his cell phone. They destroyed the videos it contained, and this turned out to be a uh, they. Sharp brought uh, a case, basically charging uh, the cops with unlawful unle- uh, harassment and detention. The cops sought to dismiss the case against them, citing a policy that instructs officers to leave citizens who are recording them alone unless they are actively violating a law. So, in other words, the game is this You're shooting me vi- video? Oh, wait, oh, I see you're not in the uh, crosswalk. Uh, jaywalking, give me that video camera and break it. So, they have a policy of allowing people to videotape them, but they have a loophole that basically says figure out any way you can. To get them to stop videotaping you, and you're in the clear. Well, the Justice Department says that's not kosher. It's a violation of the First Amendment right to observe and record police officers engaged in the public discharge of their duties. And the policies should affirmatively, affirmatively set set forth the contours. In other words, you need to educate your cops. You cannot. Take somebody's video camera if they're videotaping you. You can't do it. DOJ also says that seizing the recording equipment without a warrant constitutes a violation of the 14th Amendment where you need to have due process. And that you also need to basically come up with policies that proactively. Educate cops, you're not allowed to do that. So if you're videotaping a cop and they tell you not to do it, no matter where you are in the country, cite the Department of Justice before they smack you around and take your video camera and put you in jail, anyways.
5: I know this is going to shock you. I know this is going to blow your pants off and make your eyes pop out of your head like a coked up, choked out Roger Rabbit. But the truth is, There are a bunch of things that the right and left wing of this country should and largely do agree upon. What? Blasphemy! Next you're going to tell me that God doesn't exist, but if he did, he would prefer Dave Barry over Mark Twain, and he would prefer eating Marmite over hanging himself with a belt. It's not what some ideologues or the media want you to believe, but it's true. For example, you could be for the death penalty or against it, but no one should be for the execution of an innocent man. You could be pro-guns or pro-gun control, But nobody should be for shooting an unarmed person, as we're told to think with the Trayvon Martin shooting. It's like saying you you like Penn State football, so therefore you also must support pedophilia. I like some of the plays Coach Sandusky came up with, especially on third and long, hence I will not stand here while you disparage his extreme love of children. And now in Michigan, we're seeing another issue that everybody should agree on. The governor there has instituted an emergency manager law, which allows the state to take over fiscally troubled areas and put in their own unelected emergency manager who has complete control. This has already been done in four cities. Now, you can agree with the law, or you can disagree with the law. Though if you agree with it, I would say you have the mental acuity of, let's say, oatmeal. So the people in the state of Michigan who for some odd reason wanted to stick with a system called democracy chose to tell the emergency manager law to go suck a big old clitoris. And they went about recalling the law by collecting hundreds of thousands of signatures. They did exactly what they needed to do. But the two Republicans on the canvassing board threw out the petitions because they claimed the font was too small. So the people of the state said they liked democracy. And two people said you don't like it in a large enough font. You know... Come to think of it, we should also throw out the Constitution, because it has a bunch of ink blotches on it, and if you want the right to life and liberty, then get a ballpoint, motherfucker. Quick side note. Why don't they come out with ballpoint pen tops that taste like candy? I'm chewing on him anyway. Point being, you can be right wing. You can love emergency managers more than a shopping mall Santa Claus loves the Fifth of Bourbon he downs during his piss break. But you should still fight against the dismantling of our system of governance, the destruction of our way of life. Just like you can hate Occupy. You can despise every one of those protesters more than Jewish kids despise the shopping mall Santa Claus. But you should still demand Occupy protesters have their freedom of speech. Because it affects your rights too. If you were getting pepper sprayed at your rallies against healthcare and evolution, gays and education, I would be the first to defend your right to protest, even if I thought you had the intelligence of, let's say, flan. You see, the corporate talking heads on TV want you to believe there are two sides to every news story. There aren't always. We should all stand for the right of the people of Michigan to recall a law if they so choose. And to the board of canvassers, I know you don't like small printing. So let me say this last part in all caps. <laughs> faces
10: s***. F***. F***.
5: Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady.
14: My name is Janine Garofalo.
5: This guy. Hi,
0: I'm John Oliver.
5: Even sometimes this guy.
0: This is Greg Pallas and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity.
5: Free at Lee Camp. LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry.
14: This weekend, there will be arraignments again uh, for five men accused of masterminding and conspiring to pull off the 9-11 attacks. The most famous of the five defendants is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, who we used to think of as looking like this, but who now, after years in U.S. custody, looks more like this. Uh, This trial was initially going to be held in real criminal court. In November 2009, the U.S. Attorney General announced that a federal court in Manhattan would be the venue. But after a political uproar about how awful it would be to try terrorism defendants in real U.S. courts, the administration reversed course, and tomorrow's arraignment will be held instead at Guantanamo. It will not be a real court trial. It will be a military tribunal. The few terrorism cases that have been pushed through this relatively untested, ad-hoc military tribunal system have actually produced results that are more lenient on average than terrorism cases tried in real American courts. But the fear of trying an important terrorism case in a real court in New York is such that tomorrow's proceedings will be held offshore. They'll be held in Cuba. This week, by the way, there was a conviction in what law enforcement says was the, the most serious terrorist plot on U.S. soil since 9-11, a real plot by real Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorists to bomb the New York City subway system in 2009. The conviction was on Tuesday in Federal District Court in Brooklyn, in New York. I feel the need to tell you it was on Tuesday, because when it happened, nobody really noticed. Life went on in Brooklyn, and in New York City, and in New York State, and in America, totally uninterrupted. Nobody much noticed, but justice was served in a real court.
15: Hey, Jay, this is Isaac from D.C. I'm just calling to say great job on the show. It's okay not to be sing- um, cynical just for a moment. I thought it was um, a really positive show, a very empowering show. It uh, had a lot of great commentary. I especially loved the uh, Blacking It Up segment about... Um, you know, communicating with your family about the the whole issue of gay marriage and, and having a conversation and trying to understand people. I thought that was really enlightening. Uh, but I also just wanted to comment on the show's theme in general. I think it is okay not to be cynical, and I think a lot of people, like, we need to tell ourselves that. Um, I mean, it's it's so uh, tough not to be uh, cynical, especially when you see things like what just happened in North Carolina. It's so hard not to be cynical. Uh, I'm, I'm straight, but... Um, I have lots of gay friends. Uh, my uh, girlfriend works uh, as, as a lawyer with gay rights, and I know a lot of people uh, who uh, are, are very close friends of mine who are involved um, in um, activism and just really working really hard for LGBT rights. And they never get any victories. And I just I, I feel so bad for them. Uh, and you know, just being around DC, seeing these people, talking to them, everybody just felt really really good and 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 just you know bravo and and there was this this sense around the town uh you know that there is a sense of hope and it, it's it's really really important to acknowledge that because it's hope that's going to help us uh defeat homophobia and it's hope that's going to help us uh you know strive for equality and get there and so i think your show is was, was a great way to do that i know i'm going to be recommending it to many of my uh family members uh, not direct family but uh, uh outside family who uh would, I think, really benefit from, from hearing that, that message. So thanks a lot for putting it out there. Love the show. See you later.
7: Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Pennsylvania. Um, I never really understood white privilege too much, and I listened to your conversation about it, and I've been back and forth until I heard Matthew talk about uh, the black burden. Watching two waitresses fight
2: over which table to seat me at because neither one of them thinks I'm a good tipper because I'm black. Not going with my Caucasian girlfriend to look at apartments because when we go together we were always declined because I'm black.
7: And it really made me think about things. And what I ended up getting out of that was I appreciate things now that I never thought about before, now I have a much broader perspective on it, and uh, I thought that uh, the way Matthew uh, put things really made me think about things and I just wanted to uh, thank him for saying it, and I wanted to thank you for putting it on there you 're doing a great job, and thank you, buddy.
0: I'd like to include a quick trigger warning and mention that the following voicemail includes descriptions of an attempted teen suicide.
2: Hi, this is Dan from Chicago, and this is actually my second attempt. Uh, I wanted to try to do one without crying. Um, This is about Obama's uh, support for same-sex marriage. I recently came out as a gay man to my now, well, ex-girlfriend my best friends and a few coworkers—they've all been very supportive. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm happy. For the first time in my life, I feel happy. And honest. you know, it's a good feeling. But I just wanted to tell this story. You know, when, when I was a teenager, I didn't—I didn't want to be gay. I didn't want these feelings. I didn't want to be attracted to other boys. And nobody was there to tell me that being—that having those feelings was normal. So I, I stole a, a heavy-duty trash bag from one of the janitor's carts at school. This was when I was 14, so this was 10 years ago. And I, and I bought that trash bag home, and I waited a week for my parents to go out of town. And I took that trash bag and a roll of duct tape, and I went up to my room, and I laid in my bed, and I put that trash bag over my head, and I duct taped it around my neck. And I can still feel that wet plastic on my face. As I took a bunch of deep breaths, and before I passed out, boy, I was feeling really dizzy and lightheaded, I, I felt my way over to my desk as as quick as I could, and I jerked open one of the drawers, and I grabbed a pair of scissors, and I stabbed into my mouth, and I I cut up my mouth, and I cut my lip. I still have a scar today. Rub it. And I survived. But there's so many many kids who didn't. There's so many kids who didn't. There's too many. And um, be cynical all you want. But it's important that Obama came out for that. Because he's saying that being gay is normal. And I really needed to hear that. I was 14. Uh, it's. It's probably the, my proudest moment in my life is when I finally decided to come out, and it was because <clears throat> that I, I I finally heard a public figure say that it was normal to me, and it's important for all those kids who are going to hear that and realize that what they feel is normal and that they're not outcasts and that there's other people like them and that they're not that there's other options. And, oh, I'm sorry I couldn't do it. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So, you know, after a voicemail like Dan's that we just heard, I I certainly don't feel like I have anything to add to what he said, but it really puts a point on this sense of gratitude that I have for Dan and, and all the callers like Dan who've been Calling and, and sharing amazing stories and perspectives at seemingly a, a much higher rate in in the recent uh, months on on the show than before, and it's it's really been just incredible uh, the sorts of conversations that have that have been had, and um, you know, so so Dan said that you know he talked about his his proudest moment about coming out, and I, I've I've said before in reference to uh, to a set of voicemails that was played earlier. Um, but, but I'll say again, I think, I think it is really crystallizing that my proudest moment is that I have this show that somehow, some way or whatever variety of ways has attracted listeners like Dan and all of the others who, you know, who call in and they want to share these stories and they chose my voicemail line to call in on and, uh, you know, and, and, and those who listen and appreciate, I just, it's, it amazes me every time uh, voicemails come through with stories like that. And, um, and, you know, so I just, thanks to Dan, thanks to all the callers. Uh, keep, keep the stories coming. I, I can't wait to hear what people's reactions are to what we just heard. I'll, I'll tell you mine just in short is that, you know, when I, when I f- f- listened to his message the first time, I was sitting on an Amtrak train, f- you know, surrounded by people and, you know, with tears streaming down my face because I don't know how to react in any way other than that, basically. And um, and he he mentioned that he called in more than once because he was attempting to tell the story without crying. He, he failed <laughs> three times to, to tell the story without crying, and I listened to it three times and failed to hear the story without crying. So, um, you know, thanks Dan for sharing. That's it for today. Thanks to everyone who supports the show. Of course, uh, memberships and donations are what the, the show runs on. That can all be done at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also donate your social media accounts to us to help us spread the word through you that way.
1: burning on a shining sheet